So Kayla posted a picture on, um, what's that called, the Instagrams, you know? And uh, I don't have one of those, but of the, I should have put it up here, but of um, the candles on Friday night. So Friday, we did our Good Friday service uh, with the four churches. It was pretty great. Um, And at the end of each of the, we did the seven words from the cross. And at the end of each uh, little homily, sermonette kind of thing, um, us pastors, we walked over and we snuffed out one of the candles. And at the very end of the, the service, Drew, uh, the pastor from Trinity, read out uh, the, the final passage about the death of Jesus. You know, all the lights were off. We snuffed out that last candle, and then we walked out in silence. And I thought it was pretty cool, pretty powerful moment. Um, but the good news, right, is it's not really the end of the story, right? Because what if it was? Right? John Frame, this theologian, has this great quote, eternal life is a bit much to expect from a dead Savior. <laughs> right? If, talking about life and the perfect life and life everlasting, if, if we don't have Sunday, Friday doesn't make a lot of sense. They kind of go together, right? And if we don't have Friday, Sunday obviously doesn't make sense either. Um, we just talked about this in the Apostles' Creed, right? The Christi- that's why we read the Apostles' Creed today. It's like the very basics of the Christian gospel, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, and was buried. Uh, he descended into hell. That's the whole thing. I'm not talking about that today, what that means. Uh, you can ask me about it later. Um, and then on the third day, right, he rose from the dead. That's what we're celebrating today. The Christian claim, the claim of our faith is that Jesus was the first human being, actual, physical, human being. He was a guy. He got the flu. He stubbed his toe. Right? We've been talking about this in Luke a ton, the humanity of Jesus, and how he really was one of us. He got sad, he was happy, he got tired, he got hungry. He was the first actual human being with a real actual human body to die and then not be resuscitated like Lazarus, right? And like, you know, a bunch of kids in the Bible all come back to life, you know. Um, that guy who falls out the window when Paul's teaching. Every time somebody asks me, how long are the sermons at your church? I say, until somebody falls out a window because that's from the Bible. That's the only indication about how long a sermon should be we have in the Bible. So, um, no, just kidding. Uh, so, we, those are like resuscitations, right? Because Lazarus, he opened his eyes, and he went, ah, oh, bummer, <laughs> right? And then he had to live a whole other part of his crappy life and then die again, right? So, he died again. Jesus, not so. He was not resuscitated. He was resurrected, meaning he gets this eternal human body, physical, actual body, um, he's the firstborn of the resurrection, is what we say. That's a big claim, right? That right there in the middle of history that this happened. So today we're going to take a look at this claim. We're going to see how Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached it when he was on a missionary trip, right? So you guys know the story of Paul. Uh, one day he's going to kill a bunch of Christians, and I don't know, he's riding his donkey or whatever, and Jesus drop kicks him, Bruce Lee style, off of his donkey, and then shines a flashlight in his face and goes, hey man, cut it out while you're messing with me, you know? Paul gets real freaked out. I'm paraphrasing. This is the New John version. And uh, gets real freaked out and goes blind and everything. Becomes a believer, gets his sight back, starts teaching about Jesus. At one point, Paul's a, I mean, years go by, like 10 years go by. Paul's a pastor at this church in Antioch, and he's sitting around with his buddy Barnabas. Uh, and uh, him and Barney are like, boy, we should really take off from here and go tell some other people about Jesus. So they do like a handful of these missions trips, right? Where the first one was a little shorter and the second one was, it's like my motorcycle trips. First, I went to Santa Barbara and back, and then I went 
okay, we went all the way to San Diego and back, and then the last one, I went into like Texas and over the Rockies and like up into Denver. Anyway, this is what Paul did, right? Progressively bigger trips. So he's on one of these trips, and he's coming through the city of Athens. And that's what we're going to read today for our Easter uh, text is um, this, the, Paul's preaching. It's this famous sermon that Paul gives um, to the Athenian people, right? So, um, and he talks here about resurrection. We're going to see what, the, what happens. All right, verse 16. So just, if you have your phone, you want to follow along, we'll have it up on the screen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him uh, when he saw, sorry, when he saw the city was full of idols. So he's waiting for his friend. He gets to Athens first. It's kind of a long story. He has to take off from some persecution before everybody else. So he ends up in Athens first. He's waiting for his friends. He's walking around. You ever done that in a city? Anybody? Okay, so I go on motorcycle trips by myself. Am I the only person that like goes on vacation by myself? It's pretty great. But you go into a city and you're completely by yourself and you're like, I'm going to walk around and see what's here. This seems to be what Paul is doing. So he's in this city, Athens. When we think of Athens, what do we think of, right? Like Socrates standing there like this, saying something very wise, uh, or Plato or Aristotle, right? One of these guys. We think of this classical city in Greek history. Well, this is hundreds of years later. Athens is no longer that city that we think of. Athens was, uh, it was not as big, but it was still an important kind of city for education and philosophy. It's just no longer like the center of the world, you know, like it used to be. Um, The population here at this point is like less than 30,000 is what I read. So as he's walking around doing this thing like I do on the motorcycle trips, you know, trying to find out, you know, where's all the good restaurants and stuff. He's walking around and his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full of these idols. So Athens had hundreds and hundreds of temples to the Greek and the Roman gods. I mean, you couldn't miss them uh, walking around, right, like Paul was. And as he's seeing these temples, he sees this temple, he walks around, he sees that temple. Um, His spirit was provoked within him. This reminds me of, I have an uncle, his name's Warren, other side of the family, and he's my hippie uncle who... um, um, he's a fantastic guy, uh, but he, like when I was a kid, he lived, he actually lived in a teepee, like out on a piece of property, he lived in a teepee, right, and uh, this guy, he teaches about permaculture, which is, um, is like sustainable farming, like this guy knows about outside, right, like I don't know about, I don't go outside, um, except on my motorcycle, uh, but like, um, you know, he, this guy is not at city kind of people, right, he lived on a boat for a while, anyway, one day, uh, my grandparents, I forget what it was. I feel like it was one of their birthdays or anniversary or something. So all the family was getting together. And um, I think grandma listens to these sermons. So hey, grandma. Anyway, um, uh, they wanted to go to this like casino buffet and um, for dinner, right? So we all show up at this place. I don't know. It was up in Northern California somewhere. I don't know. And we all show up at this place. And I'm talking to my Uncle Warren, like while we're walking across the parking lot. We're like in the middle of a conversation. And he walks into the casino, and all the lights and the smoke and everything hits him. And this is the guy that lives in a teepee. And I, at a certain point, you ever been talking to somebody, and then you realize they're not even listening to you? Right? Like, I had that feeling with Uncle Warren. He walked in, and he was just like, his senses were overloaded. And he was just completely out of place. And he's like, he felt so uncomfortable. And I could tell, you know, you look up at the stars all night. It's very different from looking up at neon signs and those things that the bells, you know, on the slot machines are very loud. And he was just completely overwhelmed, I remember. You could see it in his face. That's Paul here in Athens. He's like my Uncle Warren walking into this casino. He walks into this city, and it's so uh, jarring for him, right? He knows that 
most of these gods, he says later in a different spot, basically, like, we know these gods aren't real. These are demonic forces. He has this heightened sense of awareness because of how much he loves people. His spirit was provoked within him. That's what that means when he saw these idols. So he's walking around. His heart is broken. So what does he do about it? He does what he always does. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, why does this babbler wish, or what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. So first he does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue and he talks to the Jewish people. Um, partly because he was Jewish, and this, you know, these are his folks, but also because it's a captive, easy audience. He could walk in and go, hey guys, I think I know who's the Messiah, and they would all go, hey, cool, who is it, right? So he would at least get one free sermon, because he had been trained by this guy Gamaliel, who was like, I don't know, it's like clerking for a Supreme Court justice, you know what I mean? Like, this was the guy to train with, and so Paul could walk into any synagogue across the whole world and go, hey, I'm a student of Gamaliel. Can I give a sermon today? Everybody would freak out. You know, it's like if Tim Keller walked in here right now and was like, John, sit down, I'm doing this. I'd be like, all right. <laughs> you know, that's kind of Paul. So he walks in, he does that. Um, but then the second thing he does is he goes into the marketplace, which uh, we think of like he went to Trader Joe's and started hassling people who were trying to buy eggs. No, 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 not exactly. Think of more like, um, have you been to the Ferry Building on Saturday? Right, you got the... Uh, What's it called? The uh, farmer's market there. And there's all the people. And then there's a bunch of restaurants. People are hanging out and they're having coffee. Okay, so imagine if it was that, but also there was no Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. And so everybody who wanted to say something went down to the ferry building on Saturday to talk to people, right? That, that's what's happening. So this is like the place where people are gathering and the philosophers would hang out here and um, uh, debate. So he mentions these two philosophical groups, the Epicureans. You guys know about this, right? right isn't that a word people use now? Uh, they were followers of a guy named Epicurus. Their whole thing was the, the goal of life is pleasure, right? You just got to feel as good as you can. So it's kind of like the ancient version of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? That was their, that was their bumper sticker. Uh, whatever, just you got, uh, they didn't really like the gods. They didn't like organized religion exactly. They just wanted to feel good all the time. That's a Kramer quote. All right. And then uh, the Stoics were the opposite of that. They were followers of this guy named Zeno. Great baby name. Anybody's looking? Zeno? Okay, no. Uh, and anyway, they were very devout and believed in the gods, and they rejected the Epicurean pleasure, and they said, instead of living for pleasure, you need to live a moral life. So you should seek to be a good person, kind of on your own. That was their thing. So these are the two groups. And Paul, being Paul, he's there, and he's arguing, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and uh, then this happens. And they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus saying, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So they took him to the Areopagus, which uh, the translation of that is where we get the phrase Mars Hill, right? You know, it's like 1,500 churches named Mars Hill, and the two big ones turned out to be not so great. Um, <laughs> right? There's one in the Midwest and one in Seattle that kind of collapsed. Anyway, um, but that's where they get this from. This, it, the phrase means Mars Hill. Mars was one of the, the Greek gods or Roman gods. I don't know. Which one? Roman? Roman. Yeah, yeah. Um, originally, though, the Areopagus was the, the place where, back in the day, where the ruling council for the city of Athens would meet. 
So imagine if hundreds of years later, nobody, the, the government or something happens in America and the government isn't based at the White House anymore, right? But like, it's just where people hang out and they talk about stuff, you know, that's kind of what this was. Um, and it was this famous sort of spot. And so uh, they're not making, they're not a government entity. They're just a bunch of dorks who hang out and people really respect them because they're really smart, right? And so I love Luke's editorial note here. Now the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I love it. Luke gets a little bit snarky. He can't help but describe these people. He adds this comment that all they do is they sit around and they waste their time talking about new ideas and they think they're so much better than everybody else. You know, as I'm translating, that's the, the paraphrase, right? Um, a modern version of this, I was thinking about this this week, is... Uh, and I love to sit in there and put my headphones in and then turn on transparency mode on my headphones so I can hear what everybody's saying, but they think I'm listening to my headphones, is right around the corner, Cafe Trieste, where all the beatniks and the hippies from the 60s, they're all old guys now, and they all hang out, and they talk about how great it would be if we were all communists, you know? And uh, <laughs> anyway, so this is, like, this is Paul being snarky about the guys at Cafe Trieste. They think they're so smart because they sit there and they read their books from City Light, and they drink their coffee that's not even really that good if we're being totally honest. I don't know why it's famous, and they talk about these ideas. So Paul now gets brought to Cafe Trieste to make his point to all the old hippies, and he's there. What's he going to say? What does Paul say? Let's read the sermon. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he stands in the middle. Uh, the, he's making his speech, his presentation, and he starts it like this. You're very, you guys are very religious. Now, is that a good thing that he said, or is it a bad thing, right? If it's a bad thing, he's kind of saying to them, you guys think you've got this figured out, right? You're, you're very religious. You think you've worked your way back to God. I don't think that's what he's... Some commentators will say that's what he's doing. I think he's doing something else. I think he's just starting off nice. When you walk into a job interview, is that your family? Wow, they're lovely. You know what I mean? You know, even though it's really like from Seinfeld, the ugly baby. You guys know the ugly baby from Seinfeld? Everybody has to be polite, but every time they look in the crib, they go, oh, <laughs> oh, it's breathtaking, you know? So that's what's going on here. You guys are breathtaking. You're very, you're very religious. Um, verse 23, so he, he just, a little bit of flattery. Look, I, I saw these temples. You guys are great. You're religious. Verse 23, as I passed, for as I passed along, I observed, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What you therefore worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. All right, this is where Paul becomes a genius. We're going to talk about next week, we're going to do the exact same verses, except we're going to talk about how Paul said it. This week, we're just kind of talking about what Paul said. But this is, this is great. This is what he does. Athens had hundreds of temples all around. Every, you could, there was one on every, it was like Starbucks, right? One on every street corner. And the city was also filled with statues to the gods all over the place. And Paul says, as I was walking around, I noticed something. You have this weird statue that says, to the unknown God. So what happened was hundreds of years earlier, Athens had a plague, and a lot of people died, right? Um, uh, COVID kind of thing, but way worse. And they were all very religious, and uh, they figured, well, maybe what happened was there was a God who got angry at us because we weren't worshiping him, but we don't know which one right? We don't know which God was mad. So they came up with this plan. This is a brilliant idea. We're going to let loose a flock of sheep, and wherever one of them lays down to take a nap, we're going to go find the closest... I don't know how they thought this was what works, but this is what they did. We're going to go find the closest temple, and we're going to make a sacrifice to that God. So these sheep are going to tell us which gods are mad. 
But if they lay down and there's no temple around, that must mean there's a God we don't know about who's angry. So we're going to put up a statue right there that says the unknown God. So eventually all the sheep, right, they got to lay down, you know? And so the whole city of Athens was covered with these statues to the unknown God hundreds of years earlier. So obviously by the time of Paul, you know, these statues, some of these must have still been there. He was walking around and he, I don't know if he knew the story where it came from, but he was like, boy, that's odd. The statue to the unknown God. So he uses that as a starting point. And he says, you guys are so worried about worshiping about a God who's upset with you that you don't even know. He's like, there is one. And let me tell you about him. So he, he started on their, their terms. I love that. Um, verse 24, keep going. So let me tell you about this God. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. Being the Lord of heaven and earth uh, does not live in temples made by man. So he starts all the way at the beginning. I'm guessing when he talked to... Um, Jewish folks, he walked into a synagogue. He started like this. Hey, you know the Messiah? <laughs> you know the Messiah? I was like, did I get buzzed? Did I say a word I'm not supposed to say? What's that game? <laughs> yeah, catchphrase or yeah, whatever. Um, what was I saying? Something about Jesus? Oh, yeah. Ah, okay. No, I can't say Jesus <laughs> on Easter. <laughs> Let's see. Kathy's freezing. That's why. Here we go. Anyway, back to this, right? Figured it out? There we go. All right. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So when he's talking to Jewish folks, he just walks in and goes, hey, I know who's the Messiah. And they all, okay, great. He can't do that with the, 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 the Savior of what? I have no idea what you're talking about. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. He's the God who created you, right? He created everything. Now, this is why this is so cool. The Greek gods, when you learn about the Greek gods, they were all specialists, right? Like you had the god of war, the god of the sea, the god of love, you know, whatever. Paul says, he walks up and he's like, my god is not a specialist. My god goes all the way to the beginning. He created everything. Um, this is like Moses at the burning bush. He walks up to God, to the bush, it's burning. He's like, you know, they're having a conversation and he's like, well, what's your name, dude? And God, his answer to what his name is, he says, I am. That's what Yahweh means. And what he meant by that was, I just, I exist. I've always existed. I exist right now, and I will always exist. I am being, is what God says. That's where Paul starts, with Yahweh, the God who has always been, right? And he doesn't live in temples uh, made by man. Athens was full of temples built by people, filled with statues that were made by people. And he says, this is not how our God works. Our God inhabits the entire world. Even when God let the people build him a temple, at the, the prayer where Solomon, I love that part of, is it what, Second Kings it would be, I guess. Um, Solomon stands up and he prays. And in his prayer, I think while he was praying, something dawned on him. Wait, God can't fit in a temple. <laughs> He's like, you're the, we built you this temple and it's great and everything, but you're the God of the whole universe, you know? Chris was talking about this in his sermon last week where He's, he was talking about some star planet, like way far away. And he was like, God is just as present in that planet as he is here, as he is in a temple, right? So this is the God that Paul starts with. Um, he keeps going 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's not served by human hands. Um, he's putting, what he's trying to do is show these Athenians what God reveals about himself and humans and their relationship. Okay, so the way the, the Greek and Roman gods worked was, and you know, like all the Canaanite gods as well, 
and a lot of these pagan gods was you could basically manipulate them through stuff, right? So the god Baal was like the god of the weather and, or, you know, uh, fertility. It's a long story. Anyway, like you could make a sacrifice and then he would owe you something and he would give you that thing because it was guaranteed, right? And Paul says that's not how this works, right? We don't, God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed something from us. He created us as an overflow of love. That's what we learn in the scripture. And this is the God who Paul is preaching to these people. He says he's, not, he's nothing like your gods where you think you can manipulate him with stuff. Um, and then he keeps going, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth. Oh, sorry, yeah, there we go. Um, so he made from one man every nation. So now what he's doing is he's getting into the, he's telling the Bible story. You know how we've talked about sharing the gospel story, creation, fall, redemption, uh, restoration. This is kind of what Paul's doing. He's moving through the Old Testament. He doesn't specifically mention Adam and Eve or the biblical account of creation, uh, but he talks about how God created. And he says, there were a lot of creation myths in the first century world, and a lot of these Greek gods had different creation stories. It's really interesting, though, when you read all of these ancient creation stories, how different they are from the story of the Bible, right? The story of the Bible is that the Trinity created and made the world perfect and put mankind in the garden and loved them and everything was good. In most of the other creation stories, it's like creation was an accident while two gods were fighting. Right? And it's always, you know, these gods are more like superhumans, not like divine. You know what I mean? This story is very different. So Paul is really getting into that. And then he continues. He says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So this creator God is also absolutely in control. He is absolutely sovereign. This is a challenge to what uh, a lot of folks in this first century world would have believed is something like deism. Um, it was the Epicurean way to see these gods. Deism is the idea that uh, a God or somebody created the world and then just sort of set things in motion and then took off. So like the, the illustration a lot of people use is like the watchmaker. Makes the watch and then doesn't have to sit there and do it the whole time, right? Um, and Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. God created, but he's also active in our world. Right? He's active in your life. Where you live, God controls that. Where you were born, God controls that. There were no Greek or Roman gods with this much control. Right? Their gods were like the Avengers. Right? They were just sort of superheroes. And Paul again is saying, that's not the one I'm teaching you about. I'm teaching you about a new God. He keeps going, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. So now he's saying, um, uh, this is what people do. We try to find God. But this is one of those things where if you read this in English, you miss the biggest part of this verse. Um, and remember, I always say this, my Greek sucks. Uh, I took Greek in seminary, and I'm not great at it, uh, and I don't remember all of it, but I know how to read a little, and I can read the guys who read it, and every one of them pointed this out, so here we go. In Greek, there are different ways to, do, to talk about verbs, right? So there's two verbs in this clause, seek and feel. They're trying to seek God, they're trying to feel him out, you know. Um, in both of those verbs are written the same way and in a very specific way. So there's a way in Greek to write a verb that something is definitely going to happen, right? And then there's a, this is the opposite of that. This is, they are going, the, the verb is, they're going to seek and feel, but it's probably not going to happen. It's not going to happen. This is like if in English, 
somebody made a sarcastic joke about John's going to dunk a basketball. It's not going to happen. I touched the rim once like this, right? That much, that's how much I touched the rim, and I was pretty excited, and I told everybody, and I'm still telling everybody, uh, <laughs> right? But this is like, this is that. So when he's saying these people, they're all out there, they're trying to find God, he's saying it's not going to happen on their own. Um, and then he says, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. So even though people are out there looking, they don't know where to look. The Bible gives us the picture of darkness and light, and that before God, we're all sort of lost in darkness, even though God is right there. The irony is, as we're looking for God, we can't find Him, but He's all around us. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? Ask Jonah. There's nowhere you can run away from God. Verse 28, and then Paul, this is also great. We're going to talk a bunch about this next week. For in Him, we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. So Paul, this is great, Paul quotes two Greek poets to show them this sort of universal truth. The first quote is, in him we live and move and have our being. The second quote is, for indeed we are his offspring. Here's the thing, though. If you go back and read the original poems, those poems are about Zeus, right? Not about Paul's God. But Paul does what we, do you remember we did this a couple of times in the summer when we did the summer series? We watched a TV show in church and we talked about what's the message of this show. Is this something we receive, we reject, or we redeem this theme? This is what Paul is doing. This is where we get that idea from, is this verse, is he enters into their culture. He knew their poets well enough uh, to quote it back to them and to say they're close. They've got the idea right. They just got the, the object wrong, right? It's not Zeus. It's my God. And then he continues, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought, to, uh, ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So he says, think about it. If God is this big, if he's omnipresent, if he's everywhere, these idols that you guys make with silver and gold, and st it doesn't make sense, right? How are you going to create a God? Um, he talks about this in other parts of the Bible too. But do you see what Paul is doing here? He's taking them through the gospel story, but he's helping them build into the way that they see the world, the perspective that the scriptures give him. He's, he's, he's showing them how big God is and how little their gods are. He's kind of digging deep, deep down, and he's challenging the way that they see the world. And then verse 30 and 31 here. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So Paul now calls for repentance. Repentance, we've talked about this a hundred times. What it literally means is to just turn around, to be facing this way and to turn and face this way, to be facing sin and selfishness and pride and turn to Jesus and turn away from that sin and to his salvation. And so why should we repent? Why is Paul calling for them to repent? Because judgment is at hand. Notice how he didn't start with judgment in his sermon, like the guy who stands out in front of Old Navy downtown with his megaphone, who just has a sign that says, you know, you're all going to hell and God's going to judge you or whatever. That's not where Paul starts. He starts at the beginning by showing that God is a loving creator, and by, by talking about God as creator, now he gets to the part where he says, God also then, because he's the creator, he has the right to be the judge. And in sharing the gospel, he warns them of this judgment. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin demands punishment. 
And that punishment, right, that judgment, the wrath of God is coming for you. And who's going to be that judge? The man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. Oh, but Jesus isn't a judge, right? He's just a hippie who loves everybody. Right? We've been talking about this a lot in the book of Luke. That we're, The reason we're reading the book of Luke is to get a real picture of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And in the Gospel of Luke and, you know, in other spots too, I'll read this to you from John. I don't have the slide for this, but this is Jesus talking about himself. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted, uh, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. There's like a ton of places where Jesus specifically says, look, I'm the judge. And even though in American Christianity, we love to sort of water that down and pretend like that's not true, this is a major part of Paul's message is your sin has put you in a place where you're going to be judged by God. And then he continues, judged by Jesus specifically. And he continues, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the fact that God is the creator, that he's going to judge everybody, he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. So they would ask Paul at this point. I think what Paul's doing is he's anticipating objections. This is his story so far. God is the creator well, let me back up. He goes, you guys are very religious. You talk about these unknown gods. Let me tell you about one of these unknown gods. He's the real God. He's the big God. He's the one who created everything. He's not a specialist like your God. And he put us in the garden and he made us, and then we rebelled against him. And because of that, the judgment is coming, right? And he has the, you know, at this point, they would probably say to him something like, yeah, but okay, what proof do you have? Why do you really believe this, Paul? Right? These are the philosophers. They want logic and all that stuff. And so this is Paul's answer to that. The reason I know this is because Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul could specifically stand there and say, and I met him on the road. I don't know if he said that here, but he could. Right? He says that. He tells that story a bunch of times, three or four times in the book of Acts. Paul tells that story. I know he's real because I was standing there and he talked to me. And he said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, dude? What are you doing, man? You know? He's like, and there's another spot too where it hasn't happened yet, but I love where Paul is um, really depressed and things hadn't gone very well for him in Jerusalem towards the end there. And he's sitting and it says, and the Lord sat with him. He looked over and it was Jesus. And he was like, oh, hey, it's Jesus, right? Paul knows that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he says, this is the proof of all of this stuff that I'm telling you. So what does the resurrection prove? Why is it so important? I'll read to you this couple verses. Corinthians. This is Paul would write this later on. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, tell us how you really feel, Paul. I mean, basically, if there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul says we're all completely wasting our time here. We shouldn't be church planning. We shouldn't even be here right now. We should be at brunch like the rest of San Francisco. Or he says this, but the fact, a couple verses later, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death... By man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But to each his own order. Christ is the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So do you see what Paul tells these Corinthians a little later on? The the resurrection is absolutely foundational. This is like the core of what we believe. And as you go through church history, uh, people have been saying this for a long time, right? Like um, Calvin said this. Uh, the resurrection is the most important article of our faith. It is the chief point of the gospel. Okay, for a guy who wrote 
a couple of thousand-page theology book to go, the most important bit of theology is the resurrection. That means it's probably important. Or fast forward a hundred and something years, 200 years, then we get Chuck, right? Charles Spurgeon said this, uh, the resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of the Christian doctrine. The cornerstone, meaning it's like the linchpin. It holds everything up. Perhaps I might more accurately call it a keystone of the arch of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. If you could prove to Chuck Spurgeon, right, that the, the resurrection didn't happen, what he says is our entire faith crumbles. Our entire faith is built on this. And he goes on, he says, the divinity of Christ finds its surest proof in his resurrection. And then he gives a verse there. You could look these up later. This quote is in the U version thing. Christ's sovereignty also depends on his resurrection. Again, our justification hangs on the resurrection. Our regeneration depends on the resurrection. And most certainly, our ultimate resurrection rests here. The silver thread of the resurrection runs through all the blessings from regeneration onward to eternal glory, and it binds them all together. So he goes through and he basically gives all these different verses. Everything that we believe depends on the resurrection. It's the proof that Jesus lived the sinless life and that the sacrifice of his death was accepted by the Father. It's the proof that he defeated death. It's the down payment on our own resurrection. And so we can, and we'll talk about this at the end, look at Jesus with hope that one day we will receive resurrection bodies the same way that he did. This is why Easter is the biggest day of the year, right? And so Paul gives the resurrection as his proof in his sermon. This is how I know all this stuff is true, is because Jesus really was raised. Now, uh, how do you think the Athenians took it? Uh, oh, wait. Uh, that's weird. That's the wrong thing. Where are we? Sorry. Oh, I had some quotes. There's the quotes there again. Nope. I lied. I'm missing some verses. All right, let me just read these last ones too. I don't know what happened. Um, verse 32. Let me tell you what the Athenians believe, what they said. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. The Greeks believed that we're made up of a body and a spirit, right? And the body was bad and the spirit and the mind was good. And so they believed in the immortality of a spirit, but not of the body. And so most Greeks believed when you died, your body was separated from your spirit and your body just disintegrated, but your spirit lived on forever. And so that's why when they heard this, a lot of them mocked. For Paul to say that your body is going to live on after your death was a foreign idea to these philosophers, right? And notice the hostility there. They don't just disagree. Well, that's interesting. I don't quite buy it, but it's interesting. That's not what they say. They mocked him. They made fun of him. Paul stood there while everybody laughed at him. Isn't that your worst nightmare? To share the gospel with somebody or a couple of people? And then there's, you know, like, I've had this before, the polite, thanks, but that's not for me. But man, for somebody to just laugh in your face, you really believe this crap? <laughs> what are you, an idiot? <laughs> right? You know, like... uh What's the thing people always say on Reddit about, oh, you probably believe in the flying spaghetti monster thing, you know, that whole thing, right? That's one of the ways they make fun of us. There's nothing new, right? Reddit didn't invent making fun of Christians. <laughs> my, that's where I spend most of my life is on Reddit, so that's why. Uh, <laughs> um, Paul would later write about this sentiment. I think that was one of those verses I had in here. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, right? The story of Jesus, him here it says crucified, but his crucifixion, his resurrection, all of that is a joke to most people. It's a, it's a weird idea, right? But here's the thing in this verse, others were intrigued. So a lot of people made fun of him. And then afterwards, a couple of people went up to him and said, hey, we want to hear more about this. I'll keep going. Uh, verse, yeah, here we go, 34. So Paul went out from their midst. Some of the men joined him and believed, among those who were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul goes out. He never gets to finish his sermon. They make fun of him so hard, he doesn't even get to finish it. Like, they're ragging on him so bad, he doesn't even get to finish what he's doing. He's in the middle of his sermon. He's about to get to the good part. And then... Uh, they kick him out. We don't even want to hear the end of this. This is, so this is so stupid. I mean, could you imagine that? Like, I don't know, say me. Like, if I was invited to give a talk at Berkeley, like I've seen D.A. Carson do this, or Keller did this a while ago. These smart, like actual smart believers, right? <laughs> well, imagine if I did it, and I showed up at Berkeley, and they start laughing at me so hard, and all the students get up and start walking out slowly, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess we're done here. That would be very discouraging, right? But for Paul, at least something good happened. At least a couple of people came up to him afterwards. Look, I know everybody just made fun of you and called you an idiot, but I want to hear more about this. And a couple people believed, right? I love this. Dionysus the Areopagite. One of the guys, one of the philosopher guys believed. And then uh, Damaris and this woman and some others. So there were other people there too, probably listening to Paul. People who saw him in the marketplace get taken up to the uh, to Mars Hill. And we're like, oh, I want to hear what happens up there. So there's like a crowd watching. So a couple of people believed. Um, it's funny how, by the way, all the commentators like rag on Paul for this part. Because usually when Paul goes into town, a whole bunch of people become Christians, all this great stuff. And here it was only like two people or three, or, you know. And then I want to like write these guys emails. Hey, dear guy who wrote this commentary, when was the last time you gave a sermon and five people came to faith? <laughs> you know, it's cool. Five people came, you know, like a handful of people believed what he had to say about the resurrection. All right, so that's our text. Now, here's the thing. Paul talks about the resurrection. He gets made fun of. The reason this passage, I chose this, well, I've done this sermon, like not this, I changed almost everything, but this text I did anyway years ago at my old church. Here's the thing. When we think of modern people, uh, modern folks will th think about the idea of resurrection and do something like this. They'll say, well, of course, those people in the first century believed Jesus rose from the dead. They were all idiots. Right? They're all just a bunch of country roofs who don't know anything, and I'm smarter than these guys. C.S. Lewis has a great line where he calls this chronological snobbery. I love that where you just assume everybody in the pre-scientific era was an idiot and you're the first smart person that's ever, you know what I mean? And that are, like, we're so much better than everybody else. Um, N.T. Wright, I have this, like, long quote here from N.T. Wright, <clears throat> wrote this book that's like, you don't have to read it because I already read it and I'll give you all the good stuff as we go along. Uh, this book is like, you know, I don't know. It, it's fat uh, and it's dense, but it's about the resurrection. This is what he says. Uh, Jewish, the book's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Jewish resurrection belief rules out any possibility that the belief in Christ's resurrection could have generated spontaneously from within its Jewish context. When we asked the early Christians themselves what had occasioned this belief, their answer 
Oh, sorry, that's a typo. Oh, I found a typo from my Bible software. Ooh. Their answers honed in on two things. Jesus' tomb being empty and him appearing again to people alive. Right? So, in this section, Wright is specifically talking about Jewish people would never have believed in the resurrection. He says, many of the messianic movements between 150 BC and 150 AD ended with the violent deaths of their founders. When this happened, there were two options open to any who escaped death. They could give up the movement or they could find themselves another Messiah. The followers of a dead prophet could, of course, go on believing that he was a true prophet. But with a would-be Messiah who was supposed to be inaugurating the kingdom, this was impossible. Nobody, after all, believed that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Nobody was expecting such a thing. Clinging to such a belief that a recently executed person was, after all, the Messiah was simply not an option. He's talking specifically about first century Jewish people. So what he says here is these Jewish people uh, in the first century, some of, they, they were broken up into a couple of religious factions. So you had the Sadducees. On the one hand, didn't believe in the life after death at all. They didn't believe in any sort of a resurrection. Then you had the Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection at the end times. Um, neither of those groups would have easily believed that a resurrection could happen in the middle of history. They would have looked at this and said, you're absolutely insane. Right? Even the ones that did believe in a resurrection, right? There isn't a single Jewish writing outside of like the Old Testament stuff that even hints that the Messiah is going to die and come back to life, right? This is not something that these people believed. And the pagan, the Greek folks, right, the pagan thought on the other side, they didn't believe it either. Uh, this guy, Joel Beakey, writes this, Greek philosophers who believed that when we die, our souls enter another world, but our bodies will perish forever. Unlike many philosophers today, they believed that though the body perished, the soul was immortal. Plato, for, Plato, for one, taught that the soul is imprisoned by the body. When someone dies, Plato said, his soul escapes the body like a bird escapes from the cage. For the Greek philosophers, the soul was everything, the body nothing. It was even uh, less than nothing. It was the soul's prison, right? So when we look back at these guys and we go, oh, of course they all just believed it. It doesn't make sense. Paul gets up in front of these dudes, he talks about the resurrection, and they make fun of him. This was as unbelievable to first century people as it is to people in our scientific era. And so, what that means is something happened. For a whole group of people to suddenly believe that Jesus, who everybody saw get crucified, was alive and was reigning as the Lord, something must have happened. We have all this sort of historical evidence. I, got, I don't quite have time to get into all of this, but um, we have a lot of his, like, good reasons to believe the resurrection, right? We know nobody really disputes the tomb was empty. There's no historian, secular or um, Christian historian out there who goes, the tomb was actually not, you know, it's not really. There's a couple of options, right? Well, one of the options is, well, maybe people will say Jesus didn't really die. The problem with that is these were, the Romans were pretty good at killing people, Right? and let's say the swoon theory, they call it. Okay, maybe he fainted on the cross. They thought he was dead. They threw him in the tomb. How is he going to get up like a day and a half later and convince everybody that he was God, right? I got hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee. So it broke everything, and it wasn't as bad as being crucified. If you had seen me a day and a half later, right, you, it was not great, uh, right? If he had been flogged and nailed, I mean, there's no way he gets up and is like, hey, I'm actually God. And everybody's like, oh, he is. 
Right? That's, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, another, another option is like, I've seen this one. This is the ridiculous one. Is Oh, maybe you had a twin brother, like that movie, The Prestige. You remember that movie? Like, I'm like, really? You're, this is your whole, you had a twin brother and they pulled off this prank for 35 years or whatever? Okay, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. The problem with that is all these disciples were murdered and 12 guys who all get murdered for something, 11 of them got murdered. One got tortured and he didn't die, so they exiled him. But 11 guys getting tortured for this, and Paul, so we'll add him, 12 guys. Uh, at some point, one of them would be like, actually, I know where's the body, <laughs> right? That, I mean, it's the only reason 12 guys are all going to get murdered for something is because they actually believe it. Well, um, maybe everybody had the wrong tomb. I mean, really, everybody had the wrong tomb, right? Like, the Roman soldiers were standing outside an empty tomb, you know. Oh, man, maybe it was like one of those things where the, the six on the door flips down and then it becomes a nine and then nobody knows where's the tomb, you know what I mean? Like in the movies, no. Well, maybe a legend developed. Maybe nobody really early on believed this. The problem with that is there wasn't enough time for a legend develop. They started writing this stuff down almost right away. Like within 30 years, they were already writing down people's names, right, that you could go visit and stuff. It's like, what if I tried to convince you that Kurt Cobain had resurrected from the dead and was the Messiah? That's about the distance now from when Kurt Cobain died is when they started writing stuff down to when, from when Jesus had died. It's just not long enough time, right? Everybody goes, um, you can go ask his wife and his kid, and you, you know what I mean? So there's, like, there's also just tons of evidence in favor of the resurrection. There's a lot of little weird things. Like one of them, the biggest one is... Well, one of the big ones is in the first century was not like, you know, all woke like we are now, right? I mean, they did, this was a patriarchal society. And so they did not value the opinion of women. Like the closest thing that I could uh, come up with is like children now. If a three-year-old came up and told you something, you wouldn't probably believe like, oh, my dad came back to life. You'd be like, what? I don't think so, man you know, you're three. That's how first century men thought of women, right? We don't think that now, but that's how they did. So why would the first, all of the first witnesses be women, unless that's how it actually happened? If you're making up a religion, this is not how you do it, right? You don't have a bunch of women in the first century be the, the early witnesses. Then we have like the change in the disciples. These guys went from hiding and terrified to bold and standing up to the very people a couple of weeks later who killed Jesus, what would cause a change like that in somebody besides seeing Jesus? Um, Paul mentions hundreds of witnesses saw Jesus. And he writes that at a time when you could still go find those people, and he mentions some of them by name. You know, go ask Jeff. He was there, man. Like, <laughs> he, he lives over on Third. You know, like, you could go find these people still. Okay, here's my favorite one, because I have brothers. Je Jesus' brothers worshipped him as God. You know what it would take for me to worship my brother Chris as God? He has to die and come back to life and shine in front of a bunch of angels and be like, hey, I'm God. That is literally all it's, I mean, and James writes a whole book about how his brother is God that lived on forever, right? So Rebecca McLaughlin wrote this book. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's on the back table. Uh, it's the red one with the circles there, something about questions and Skeptic, you know, questions, Christians, hard questions for Christians, something like that. What is it? There you go. Yeah. Okay. 
So she wrote that, and then she wrote a book that's like for teenagers too. These two books are fantastic. These are like two of my favorite books from the last bunch of years. She says, look, I've been a Christian for ages, and I still ask questions, but I make sure and I ask the hard questions, not just about Christianity, but about the alternatives, including atheism. This is from her book to teenagers. Um, every time I do that I, I find, sorry, every time I do, I find that Christianity, as crazy as uh, it might sometimes sound, is actually the most believable option. When you look at all the evidence, she says, look, this, it actually makes the most sense. And if it does make the most sense, real quick, because I'm already over my time here, in three seconds, let me tell you how this changes everything. The first thing it does, it validates the teachings of Jesus. We're reading the book of Luke, and a lot of the things that Jesus says in the book of Luke are absolutely insane if he didn't rise and come back from the dead. If he's not God, he doesn't get to tell us this stuff. He doesn't get to tell us to take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't get to tell us how to use our money. He doesn't get to tell us about our sexuality and our pride and all this other stuff. He, he doesn't have the right. But if he is God, and if that's what the resurrection proves, then all of this crazy stuff that we're reading in the book of Luke, he absolutely gets to tell us. The second, the raising of Jesus gives us confidence in our salvation. Okay, here, here's how this works. The wages of sin is death, meaning if you're a sinner, what do you get? Death. Okay, but here's the question then. What happens if somebody who's not a sinner dies? Right? Death can't hold that person. They come back to life, right? They're resurrected. That's the idea. And so since God has told us the only person who's allowed to pay for your sin in your place is a sinless person, the only way for us to know that the sacrifice was accepted is the resurrection. It's like the receipt. God telling us it worked. Look at here's the resurrection. And so we can look at the resurrection with confidence that it's going to work, that our salvation is in God's hands. And then the third thing, it gives us hope in our own resurrection. Uh, I was just telling Eddie, we were just talking about this. My neck hurts. <laughs> my back right here hurts because I got hit by G Grand Cherokee. And then my back down here hurts because I dropped my bike. <laughs> I have a slip disc. I have two different stomach problems. My hip still kind of hurts and so does my ankle. I still have the whole inside of my foot is missing from that one accident that you guys all had to look at it for the retreat. Remember that when I, I dropped my bike on my leg like this and then I slid like a cheese grater when my shoe came off, right? We have a friend who has like crippling migraines, you know, like really bad. I'm, let's be honest, I'm not even 40 and this body's already falling apart, right? There's a lot of my friends. And I was telling the guys this the other day at the pastor's thing I was at in Oregon. Boy, I cannot wait for these resurrection bodies. And one of them said as a joke, probably you're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to sneak up behind you. He's going to tap you on the shoulder. I can't do it, but you can imagine. I'll turn my neck this way. <laughs> and I'll be like, hey, did you see what I did? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's the new body. That's how it works, you know? Right? So our hope is this world sucks, <laughs> Right? It's fallen, it's broken, our bodies are broken, we get sick, we get the coronas, we get colds, we, you know, it's not great. And then we get really sick and then we die. And that's how the world works. And without the resurrection, we don't have any hope that goes past that. And so that's why Paul is preaching this resurrection to these guys here as the ultimate hope. This is our ultimate hope. And this is why, uh, this is how I'll end because I'm already over my time. This is why the Resurrection Sunday, this is why Easter Sunday is the pinnacle of the church calendar. 
It's the thing that literally, if you take the resurrection out of our faith, the entire thing, it's like Jenga. The whole thing crumbles. But with it, everything about our world changes. Everything about what we believe, everything about the way that we wake up in the morning and live our daily lives and then go to sleep at night is completely different. Amen?